This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. The academic postdoc, it is a great deal, but it's a great deal for everyone except the postdoc. This exodus of people from academia is, in some instances, slowing the progress of uh, academic research. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we learn about an exodus of young scientists from academia and what that means for the future of research. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 202. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Dan. 2023 is wrapping up quickly. It went too fast, Josh. I can't believe it. Yeah, I don't know where the fall went. Uh, did you have a good Thanksgiving? Did you do anything? I did. We had some family over. It was uh, pleasant outside, which I love on Thanksgiving when you can actually be outside. That's a that's a thing I appreciate living in the South now, having grown up in the North where you would uh, put on a snowsuit under your Halloween costume. So I definitely did enjoy it. How about you? Uh, yeah, it was good. Family, uh, lots of food, all those things. Um, I can say, Dan, where I am here in Maryland, it's been pretty cold. It's below freezing outside right now, but I don't mind it yet. You know, we'll see. I like that change in season. I like some variety in my life and in my seasons. And so I think the cold weather is a novelty for me at this point. So check back in in three months. I absolutely hate how early it gets dark. It is driving me insane. It's just, I went to a parent-teacher conference tonight, and at 5 o'clock, it was pitch black outside. <laughs> I felt like I needed to go crawl into bed. Easily the worst part of winter, I'd say. Hey, Dan, we have a really interesting topic today. Uh, you did a really cool interview. I think our listeners are going to enjoy. Uh, before we get into that, though, we wanted to say a special thank you to our friends at Promega. If you are exploring a new career or research path, taking next steps, thinking about a career change, whether you're applying for internships, nailing job interviews, or learning about next steps in your career, Promega's professional skills and development page has all the resources that you need to jumpstart your career. You can check all that out and more at promega.com slash hello career. All right, Josh, on with the show. All right, Dan, I remember we were at the ASCB, the Cell Biology Conference, last year, about this time, I believe it was, in Washington, D.C., uh, similar to the Neuroscience Conference we were just at a few weeks ago. And both of those, it seemed like a topic that was at the forefront of people's minds, especially faculty that we talked to, was this absence of postdocs. There was a day not too long ago, Dan, I would say maybe, certainly when I was on the market for a postdoc when we were finishing up grad school. But I would even say, Dan, in the days that we started this show uh, seven or eight years ago, postdocs seemed to be almost a default path for many biomedical or science PhDs, even if their eventual destination or target was something outside of academia. Postdocs seemed to be the step that a lot of people decided to take. But now fast forward a few years here in 2023, and we're hearing there's a real lack of postdocs out there. Faculty can't find them anymore. Yeah, I heard quite a bit of it last year, and I think uh, it, it was in the zeitgeist. I, I remember asking people at the conference, talking to postdocs and, and, and faculty researchers and saying, 
what's going on? Why does it feel like there are fewer postdocs around or that it's hard to find a postdoc? And this year, I think, you know, we're, we're in the middle of these shifts. I think there's more going on. But I called up Jonathan Wozen. He has written uh, some great articles on this topic going back a year, a year and a half. And so he had great insight, people he had interviewed, some data he had collected about this thing that we're feeling. But I wanted to know, what is the actual trend line? And that's what he was able to give me. And also some of the reasons why it's happening and, and maybe what it means for science in general. So, Josh, I hope you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Today, I'd like to welcome to the show, Jonathan Wozen. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm really excited to talk to you about today's topic. I think there's a shift happening in academia, and you are a keen observer of it. But before we get into that, can you give uh, the audience just a few highlights of your training and your career up to this point? Because I think they may find it a little bit familiar. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe I'll work my way backwards a little bit. So currently... I'm a science journalist at Stat News. I, I cover biotech and life sciences, mostly along the West Coast. So I, I live and work in San Diego and tend to cover things here in California. Previously, I was at a local newspaper, San Diego Union Tribune, covering local biotech and COVID, really, because that was 2020 and 2021. And then prior to getting into journalism, I have a science background. So I got my PhD in immunology at, at Stanford and basically midway through that process found that I was having a lot more fun, getting a lot more joy out of talking about science and writing about it as opposed to being at the bench in the cell culture room doing experiments day in, day out. So I've I've been in that world and, and lived in that world and am still thinking and writing about science, but doing so for the general public and, and that really working at the bench as much. It's such important training, and I'm sure you carry it with you through your writing. I think it's, it, we're going to talk about that someday. I've, I'm going to make you promise to come back and talk about that transition from the lab to a career in writing. But for today, what really got me to call you up and, and want to talk to you is an article that you wrote last year for Stat News, and then some follow-up articles you've published since. The article last year was called, The Tipping Point is Coming, unprecedented exodus of young life scientists is shaking up academia. And I want to kind of start in the middle of that title. What did you mean by an unprecedented exodus of young life scientists? Yeah, it's a good question. So, and, and there's pretty, pretty clear data on this over the past few decades. So if you went back to, let's say the mid 90s, like 1995, and you looked at what people getting their PhD at that time went on to do next. About 64% of life science graduates were going on to do postdocs. 36% uh, of people were going on to some permanent job or permanent employment, at least among folks who had a concrete step uh, lined up. So th this is an annual survey the NSF does, by the way, called the Survey of Earned Doctorates, where they basically ask PhD graduates, you know, what are you up to next? So 95, 1995, about 60 plus percent of people doing postdocs, 36 going into jobs. Fast forward to last year, so 2022, 53% of people are going on to do postdocs, 47% going into employment. So fewer people doing postdocs, more people going into jobs. Let's zoom in a little bit on what fields those jobs are in. So 
back to the mid 90s, about 50% of people who had a job lined up after the PhD had one lined up in academia. About a quarter had an industry job, you know, private industry job that they had, had landed. As of last year, that essentially flipped. So 27% of PhD grads from last year uh, who were going into employment were doing so in academia. And 54%, so twice as many of those folks were going into industry. So long story short, a lot fewer people doing postdocs uh, percentage-wise, more people going into direct employment. And among those who have jobs uh, lined up, a lot more people going into private industry as opposed to uh, academia. So that, that's been the shift. And from the data that you know, we can see going back that far, it's been a very steady trend, at least you know, that, that began about a decade ago. And at this point, you know, that exodus has been has sort of reached its highest levels yet, just when you, when you look at those percentages. So that's that, that that was really the thought behind that that part of the title. And and you did a nice job. I I love the statistics because I feel like there's a lot of anecdotal story in the zeitgeist about PIs who are having a hard time finding postdocs, job opportunities that are posted and go unfilled for long periods of time. But having some of those numbers behind it says this is a real measurable change in the system, in academia. And you talk to quite a few students and postdocs and, and different people. Can you talk about the, some of the reasons underlying the number shift? This is not a, a change because, you know, the wind has shifted. There are some experiences of graduate students and postdocs that are making them take these other opportunities in industry as opposed to doing a postdoc. Yeah, it, it's I I can definitely speak to all of those things, and and I think you know finding that data was really helpful because as I mentioned a second ago, I, I do have the science background, so I, I tend to get excited more by data than by anecdotes and be a little skeptical with you know particular anecdotes that you may see on social media. But but there really is good data to support the trends that we're writing about. Uh, there are I think a lot of issues there and some of them have been long running or aren't really new but are sort of coming to a head now but i think broadly speaking you know you, you can talk to many graduate students and, and many postdocs you know who are dissatisfied to some degree with how hard and how long they have to work for an increasingly vanishingly small chance of, of landing a tenure-track faculty position, which I think for many decades was sort of considered the the ultimate prize or the, you know, the ultimate exactly. light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> One of the metaphors from the story that you mentioned that made an impact on me, I was talking with Paula Stefan, who's a, a labor economist, and you know, she, she said, if you think about labs you can sort of think about them like a, a hive of, of bees there's a queen bee who runs the show that's your uh, pi principal investigator or the professor and you have various you know lab techs staff scientists graduate students and postdocs who do the bulk of the actual work day to day and and, and the sort of promise behind that whole system was if you you know bust your tail for five to six years the phd student do a postdoc publish well work hard you can become a queen bee. You can get your own hive. But the numbers don't really support that 
for the majority of, of people. And so I think that's where a lot of the frustration and tension lies. That basic issue has been true for many years. So the exodus, which I would say only began in earnest about a decade ago, if we're looking at the raw numbers at the data, that exodus has as much to do with the frustrations of postdocs and grad students as it does with the rise of the life science industry. So now, you know, there's a fairly big, you know, booming biotech industry that has a sort of insatiable appetite for hiring uh, researchers to drive drug development and come up with new treatments and vaccines. So it's the combination of issues in academia and opportunities outside of academia that, that I think is really key for understanding this. That's so important. We viewed the professorship, the tenure track professorship at the end of the tunnel, we accepted the pain of graduate school and postdocs, right? It tends to be low pay. You tend to have to work a lot of hours. I went in on weekends. I assume you went in on weekends too. Uh, Vacations were non-existent. So you put in this grueling lifestyle with the belief that the ends justify the means. And then what we see is the ends aren't actually there for all the people that want them. And here comes along life science that says, we're happy to pay you, you know, living wages to do the same kind of work. It's, it's kind of that one-two punch. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. Everything you said is spot on. And, and you know, I, I worked with stem cells and organoids when I was in graduate school. And, and so, of course, we sometimes go in on the weekend to run an experiment. Your, your cells have no concept, nor do they nor are they capable of caring exactly. that uh, you may want to relax on the weekend. So definitely that's, that's all very true. It, it, it's interesting. So, you know, I, I spoke uh, a couple of times with another economist, uh, Donna Ginther, uh, who's based in Kansas, and, and she had published a sort of a provocative study back in 2017, uh, just looking at, you know, people in the life sciences or in in biomedicine who do a postdoc versus those who don't and how much, what their salary earnings are over time. And and, and the punchline there was that uh, among people who do a postdoc, that it takes them up to, you know, 15 years to actually catch up in salary to those who went directly into the workforce. And of course, by the time you catch up, you've been making a bit less money for each of those 15 years. So that can add up to you know six figures depending on what what industry we're talking about. Uh, you know there are certainly pluses to academia uh, that are different from industry in terms of you know the level of flexibility and curiosity driven research you can do and, and not being sort of beholden to shareholders and you know, projects can get taken away from you in industry in, in a way that doesn't really happen as much in academia. So there are pros and cons, but certainly on the economic side, it, it's it's a tough investment for people who are in their late 20s, early 30s, you know, would otherwise be thinking about starting a family or starting another chapter of life. It's it's certainly not an easy world in academia, as, as I'm sure many listeners and as you, you and I both know. I mean, to put a fine point on it, in one of the articles I read, the postdoc starting salary set by the NIH is something in the 50s, $55,000 a year. That's right. And a starting salary for a PhD in a biotech company closer to 100. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, there's some variability. So if you're 
working, let's say if you have a bioinformatics training, so you're sort of doing data analysis and uh, com more computational work, uh, your starting salary would probably be well above average there just because there's a lot of demand for that particular skill set. So yes, that's a pretty stark uh, gap right there. And that new grad is having to make that decision and maybe coming at it with some undergraduate debt or even some debt some maybe lifestyle debt from being in graduate school. So this is this is a pretty difficult decision to say, I would love to have the intellectual freedom of academia. And yet, maybe I have a family. Maybe I have debt. I kind of need to make a decision that gets me through the next two years, not necessarily that lets me spend five years in a postdoc and move on. Yeah, that, that's a really important point. And you mentioned having a family. You mentioned having student debt. So th those were things that we looked at you know, more specifically in a story that ran back in uh, June of this year. So we went back to the data and, and tried to understand, you know, what kinds of people are going on to do postdocs, uh, who's represented there, who's underrepresented there. And, and so the punchline there, to sum it up in a couple of points, you know, people who have kids are much less likely to do a postdoc. People who have student debt, as you mentioned, are much less likely to do postdoc. People who are older are less likely to do postdoc. People who are black PhD graduates are a bit less likely, you know, women are a bit less likely. So there there do seem to be some, I think it'd be fair to say, concerning demographic splits there that suggest that uh, it's a path that is less attainable for people, not just based on productivity or intelligence, but based on their level of, you know, financial security and, and privilege, you could say. I and, and I want to get to the point where we get to talk about some of the impacts on academia in general. I just want to highlight for people, in the article, you uh, talk with Shirley Tillman. And what was really fascinating to me was, uh, so you can tell me a little bit more of her bio, I hope, but She's been participating in academic studies since the 1990s, looking at graduate training and trying to basically identify some of these trends before they happened. Uh, do you remember some of her recommendations or, or some of the research that she did? Yeah, so, and, and those were really interesting conversations I had with her. So Shirley Tillman is a molecular biologist, maybe better known for being the former uh, president of, of Princeton University, um, and and so she had, you know, started looking into some of these trends and, and, and structural issues in academia, as you said, going back to the '90s, maybe maybe earlier. But when she spoke with me, you know, one of the things she said was that at that time in the '90s, talking with younger faculty, you know, she was really struck with how concerned people were, very you know, bright early career researchers were with whether they'd be able to uh, secure funding, whether they'd be able to make it in academia. And that was not something that had been as concerning to her when she was starting her lab back in the 1970s. Uh, she summed up the problem as, you know, too many people, too few dollars. And that sort of became the basis of a report that ran in uh, 1994. And in, in terms of some of the you know, recommendations there. So, so, so that report laid out some of the things I mentioned earlier in terms of the imbalance between postdocs and graduate students with the number of faculty positions that were there for them. So that she recommended a few things. One, 
recommendation at the time was to try to be a little more intentional with the growth of graduate programs. Second recommendation was that students needed to be given more accurate information about their career prospects, you know, early on into their their training. And she also had this idea that it would be better to fund more trainees through training grants uh, and fellowships, which come with certain requirements that uh, academic institutes track things like, you know, student diversity and the quality of the instruction they're getting, and also ultimately what their employment outcomes are, as opposed to relying more heavily on, you know, research grants like, like R01s. So I guess the thing that struck me was how many times those same recommendations kept popping up throughout the years in other reports for, you know, various committees associated with the NIH or with the National Academies. You know, years later, she had a recommendation that there needed to be or should be more staff scientist positions. In I love that one. So that, that one. Yeah. That one speaks to me. So, you know, those are permanent, well-paid positions come with, you know, real employee benefits. It's not a temporary post like like a postdoc or like a graduate student that would potentially give somebody, you know, carve out a role within academia that doesn't necessarily come with some of the same pressures of being a faculty for folks who do genuinely care about uh, doing the work. But don't necessarily want to or, or see a path to be a professor. Um, and that's been something that people have called for over and over again. There's, and I can talk about this more later, there's a working group that the NIH has put together uh, over the past year that is, again, looking at that recommendation. And I think they're going to sort of, again, put that forward in, in December is, is what I've heard. So m- many of these ideas, have, you know, you, you could sort of, uh, you know, reasonably think that you're accidentally clicking the same report or opening it twice, but it might be from different years. A lot of this stuff has been out there. I think what's happening now is there's more urgency in actually implementing some of these ideas. The warning lights are starting to flash. And 30 years ago saying, hey, our programs are getting too big. Maybe we don't want to be training this many PhD students for this many faculty positions you could be dismissed as, well, it's going to be fine. We're training great students. They're going to find things to do. And I think without the foresight of knowing, well, here are how these impacts compound, and we're about to talk about some of the impacts, you wouldn't necessarily see this tipping point, right? You don't see the imbalance leading to something more fundamentally changing about academia. And so let's, let's walk in that direction. We've talked about the data. We're seeing this trend. We understand why it's happening. We're, we understand some of the motivators of an individual making a decision to not stay in academia. How does this impact academia? What, what happens to the academic world, the pipeline, the research process when people don't decide to stick around and do postdocs and go on this adventure? Yeah, that's that's a really important question, and that, that's the thing I've been looking into over the past few weeks, and and hopefully, you know, by the time this episode comes out, you know, you'll folks will be able to read a, a story that we'll have published on that, and I can talk through, you know, r- right now some of the things I've learned and heard from people. So first, I this isn't an area where I've seen any good quantitative 
systematic data. So this will be a bit anecdotal, uh, but I think potentially still informative. So I, I've talked with a number of faculty, both you know junior faculty, senior faculty, and you know they've described in different ways how this exodus of people from academia is. Uh, in some instances, you know, slowing the, the progress of uh, academic research. So, for example, you know, I spoke with Natasha Shebani, who's an assistant professor of bioengineering at the University of Virginia. Uh, you know, she has a number of graduate students in her lab, a number of undergraduates as well, uh, has struggled to, to hire a postdoc. And one of the impacts that that has had is, uh, you know, she has a ton of ideas for the research that, that she wants to do, which focuses on, which generally deals with using ultrasound to uh, target tumors. Um, some of those ideas are a bit higher risk, a bit more technically complicated, a bit less suited for uh, a graduate student and a better fit for a postdoc. Um, so th those ideas are not being actively pursued in her lab right now. So maybe you know the point there being that there are some projects, uh, potential projects that are not uh, happening out you know, in, in the ivory tower because of, of these recruitment. Discovery um, will issues. slow down, right? If there are not humans conducting experiments, our pace of discovery is definitely going to slow. Yeah, I mean, this stuff all depends on someone doing the actual work, right? We, we usually pay a lot more attention, I think, to... Um, you know, the PI or the, the senior author on the paper, but uh, certainly the people who drive biomedical research are in the mouse room, they're behind the microscope, they're you know, running the PCR, the Western blot, whatever it is. It, you know, this this whole uh, enterprise depends on having smart, creative, hardworking people. And so to the extent that it's harder to find those people, to the extent that it's harder to keep them, that, that you know, probably will create challenges. And, and I'm, I've you know, been hearing in a number of ways about what those challenges are. So you can imagine, let's say somebody starts a project, postdoc starts a project and, you know, leaves for an industry job uh, in the middle. Um, you know, those results may never make it into the literature or it may just take way longer. Um, that's something I've heard about from a number of, of, of faculty. Um, and it creates some problems for, I think, you know, faculty advancing their careers, you know, if you're an assistant professor trying to get tenure, uh, you know, your research productivity is very important as a part of that. Your you know, salary is, is important. Uh, it's sort of tied to how many people you're able to uh, successfully train. So, so it creates issues in, in a number of ways, I think, for, for this whole system. I mean, and I think this is where we get to the first part of that title, which is the tipping point. To me, a tipping point implies that some irrevocable change is coming. There, there are these forces that are compounding and accelerating, right? We have tipped, and now there's no untipping. So how are those forces multiplying in academia? What do you see as these, these changes that lead to changes that we can't take back? Yeah, it's, I, I can't walk through my thoughts on, on that. You know, it, it's interesting. So basically... A few days, I'd say within a week of writing that story from last year, which is the main one we've been discussing, tens of thousands of academic workers across the University of California system went on strike. You know, graduate students, postdocs, some other 
uh, you know, uh, TAs, it wasn't exclusively people working in labs, but many of them were working in labs and, and they were going on strike over, you know, the exact same issues that, that we've been talking about, quality of life, uh, ability to, you know, ch- child being able to take care of you know, daycare costs. And I think also some of the power differentials in academia that can make it very difficult to be a postdoc or, or a grad student. So those were mass strikes that happened coincidentally a few days after uh, our story. Uh, more recently, researchers within the NIH have, have moved to you know, form a union. So you've got this mix of internal pressures uh, brewing within academia, some of the strikes and union movements that, that I just described. You've also got the competitive pressure of of industry, you know, that that may be uh, temporarily leveling off somewhat because biotech markets have sort of taken a bit of a downturn since the the highs of 2020 and and 2021. But you have to think long term that that industry is going to grow more than it's going to shrink. So, yeah, I, I think there are multiple pressures coming from multiple places that are, you know, beginning to really force people to make decisions that uh, folks have been talking about in sort of more measured, detached terms for, for some time now. I mean, for example, Scripps Research Institute, one of the places I spoke with for last year's story, I was a summer intern there about 10 years ago. It was a very postdoc heavy place at the time. There were not many graduate students at all. Uh, they have less than half as many postdocs today compared with what they had a decade ago. So it, it, if you walk into a lab there, it may, that mix of people may look different. So so there are a lot of changes. I, you know, I think the NIH working group that's in place to look at the postdoc system has talked openly about potentially making recommendations that would lead to there being fewer postdocs, but better compensated postdocs, and, and then also a rise in staff scientist positions. Long story short, there seems to be enough pressure from enough places that there, there is some real momentum to try to rethink the, the basic system behind how research is done in academic labs, or at least the mix of people there. Yeah, I think it's fascinating to think through, you know, we talked about probably the volume of scientific discovery goes down when you don't have postdocs dedicated to research and discovery. If that postdoc is doing work for a pharmaceutical company, we're not going to search broadly through the <laughs> the world of science and research. We're going to look for a drug target and hopefully monetize it. And so I think fewer experiments gets done. I'm I'm curious to know whether you think that means we don't do the kind of moonshot project, but we still do, you know, Sometimes in in moments of constraint, we focus our attention. I went to grad school in a time when everybody got two R01s, and we did any kind of research we could think up. We had no constraints on what it was we wanted to do. When there are constraints, maybe you think through your experiments and you produce better research. Do you have any thoughts or or analysis on, on what it means when we live in a world, when we move to this new world where there just really are fewer postdocs, maybe they're better paid, but we don't have the volume. We don't have the number of people doing the work. Yeah, it's, it's a really good and challenging thing to think about. So I, I will maybe put a few 
caveats. You know, I think what I'm generally hearing regarding the postdoc situation is not that it's impossible to hire postdocs or that the supply number of, of uh, potential postdocs has completely fallen off, but you will hear very consistently from faculty that it's higher, it's it's harder, excuse me, to uh, hire them. And and you will hear something that uh, is difficult to quantify, but that I hear time and again from the faculty perspective, which is that it's harder to find very well-qualified postdocs who are a good fit for a particular lab. So there, there does seem to be something you know real there happening. But 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 yeah, I, I guess just to extrapolate a little bit, I, I think you know if you have fewer people in the lab, then that certainly could translate into fewer projects overall. I mean, the shift that I've been seeing and hearing more about from a few different institutes, uh, Scripps is one of them, Scripps Research, but uh, another here in San Diego is uh, called Sanford Burnham Prebis. Um, so, so they've both talked about actually increasing the enrollment of their graduate programs a bit, uh, in part to offset uh, some of the postdoc uh, recruitment issues. I mean, isn't that um, the opposite of of what Tillman recommended in the 90s? Uh, yes, that is that is the opposite. Um, I mean, to, to to be fair, I think at the time that Tillman, and I've talked with her about this too, at, at the time that she had put out, you know, her report in the mid 90s, you know, there wasn't really as big and robust a biotech industry sure, as there is that makes sense. today. So in some way, I think you could argue that maybe the issue is less about um, sending too many people in the PhD programs as opposed to not doing enough to necessarily prepare them for the reality that you know the lion's share of them will be going into non-academic careers. That's a great um, distinction and, and a real goal that uh, programs can set, academic programs can set, is to prepare their students for the types of jobs they're likely to have. And that would require quite a bit of work, but I think it's achievable. Yeah, and it seems like some places, you know, that certainly do a better job of that than others. You know, just thinking back to my own experience at, at Stanford, I, I think because there was such a, you know, you're really right in the middle of, you know, biotech central, so to speak. Um, so I, I think, you know, the academics there tend to be a little more, you know, cognizant of the reality that many people will go into either venture capital or you know, working at small biotechs or starting them or uh, you know working in big pharma. So I, I think there were some you know good resources uh, within the career center and and elsewhere to get information out to people. I've I've talked with you know postdocs and grad students elsewhere who haven't quite had as much support. So I, I think it's a mixed picture there and, and that is certainly something that needs to improve preparing people for, you know, the real world that they're going to be entering post-degree. Um, I want to ask a sort of philosophical question. We tend to react to change and view it as a threat, right? Change is bad. This new change, this exodus of young life scientists is definitely bad. But I'm not convinced that that's the case. Sometimes change is just change. And I'm going to read two quotes from two of your articles. Shirley Tillman said, nothing will be more beneficial to the academic life science enterprise than getting some real competition. I see this as immensely healthy. 
And then from your June article, Sophie Kleppner said, I'm deeply concerned that academia is dying. If the academic world is not warm and welcoming and diverse, it is going to die. So where do you fall on the optimist, pessimist realm here? Is this change that we're witnessing catastrophic or is it just a change? Yeah, I, so I, I guess I'm somewhere in between. Uh, I don't cautiously optimistic. Cautiously, maybe, maybe just cautious. Okay. (laughs) That's, that's Uh, fair. Yeah. I, I don't think I, I, I would not say I see any real signs of, of catastrophe. I, I don't want folks to think that if you walk into an academic lab, you know, today or five years from today or 10 years from today that you're going to see, you know, tumbleweeds and it's just right. going to be a, a completely The uh, mice running wild down the halls. <laughs> yeah, the mice are running the lab, actually. Uh, no, that, that's not the case. I, I, I'm sure academia will continue to make important fundamental discoveries. Uh, I, I think that you could very reasonably worry or, or uh, hypothesize that there might be fewer of them uh, with some of the trends that, that, that we've been seeing with you know fewer um, postdocs and more you know PhDs leaving right after their defending their you know dissertation. So I, I but but in terms of is, is this good? Is this bad? In some ways, it depends on who you are. So I, I think it's certainly probably like unquestionably a, a good thing for trainees to have lots of career options sure. so to have the option to go on to do a postdoc versus to you know try to you know work at a genentech or an astrazeneca or wherever else so I, I think from a trainee standpoint this is a very good and and maybe healthy development and i think in some ways that's what shirley you know tillman was uh speaking to when, when she you know gave that optimistic statement about this being healthy for for biomedical research, so in some ways that's that's good. I think you know currently, you know, I, I think there is reason to worry. It has been for a while that some of the people who are not doing postdocs aren't only making that decision because they're genuinely interested in industry and, and biopharma, but in part because, you know, they just don't see any kind of path for them in academia, or you know, it's just uh, the the level of sacrifice you'd have to make and the amount of time you'd have to make it um, doesn't add up. But but they still have that you know passion for curiosity driven research and would like the idea of you know mentoring trainees and, and having intellectual independence. So in in some way, that's still a problem that, that hasn't been addressed and i think my sense from from talking with other people and it seems reasonable is that you know in some ways there are you 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 could say well maybe it's all sort of a wash if somebody is doing uh you know good science in an academic lab versus you know in a biotech company on the flip side you know there are certain kinds of projects that don't really align with the timelines and profit incentives of private industry that are still important and interesting. Many, I, I many projects, I would argue. Yeah, well, I mean, we can talk about one. We can talk, you know, messenger RNA uh, exactly. technology just won the Nobel Prize. Exactly. But for decades, that was an unproven 
and somewhat dismissed idea that you know Drew Wiseman and, and Caddy Carrico were looking into sort of on their own, more or less. And it was only later that, you know, once they had made some interesting fundamental discoveries that companies like uh, Moderna and you know, BioNTech picked up on that. So academia clearly plays an important role. It is the promise of basic research that the things you don't know are important become important at some later date. And, and we could go through examples all day. So I have a new appreciation and maybe a little bit of concern for your article that pointed out that people with maybe people of color, people with children, people with student debt are not making the choice to go into academia to do the postdoc, which would potentially mean fewer of those people represented in faculty positions. And I think that's important. And that's something that we definitely want to keep an eye on and keep track of. Because seeing yourself represented in faculty helps you know that you belong in science. That's something that we talk a lot about on the podcast. We want everybody who wants to be part of science to be part of science and to feel like they belong. And so being represented in science is hugely important. Yeah, 100%. I mean, certainly there's a lot of talk and you could maybe lip service or talk, depending on, on how you want to frame it around the importance of diversity and representation. I think DE&I has, has certainly become another uh, acronym that the people have, have thrown out at, around quite a bit in the past few years. But I think if you look at the sort of core nature of academia, it, it can still be a you know difficult and uh, unwelcoming environment for, for some folks. And you know there's some uh, data to support that uh, you know, issue that people have been raising uh, for some time now. What are the funding agencies and the academic institutions doing to address some of the things that we've observed today? Yeah, it's a really good forward-looking question. So, you know, the NIH, maybe I mentioned this earlier, but they, they've definitely, you know, closely been tracking what's happening with postdocs and a lot of the trends that we, we've spoken about. And, and they are fairly plugged into that because they fund, you know, training grants and, and grants to individual postdocs and are, of course, uh, funding you know, research grants that they go out to, to PIs. So they they had started a working group around November or December of last year uh, that is looking specifically at the postdoc system and trying to figure out what the NIH can do to make postdocs' lives better. And one of the sort of underlying thoughts there is that if, if you do that, if you create a better, more inclusive more positive experience that that may help to make academia a better destination uh, for postdocs in the future. Uh, obviously, one, one way to do that would be to pay people more. So that's come through loud and clear, I think, in some of the listening uh, sessions that they've held over the past year. But but they've also been you know looking at other ways to sort of increase support for staff scientist positions. That that's a role that we talked about earlier to to improve the quality of the mentoring and support that the postdocs receive. So th those are all discussions that have been happening over the past year. And I'm expecting some specific recommendations by mid-December, which is when that working group has to report back to the NIH. Um, so that may be something that leads to some concrete recommendations. Uh, and, and they've sort of already talked and hinted at a future where there are perhaps you know fewer postdocs, but those who are in the system are better compensated and and are better supported in 
their academic um, aspirations. So that that's something to definitely keep an eye on. I, I think still to put things in context, you know, the NIH is one player in this much larger system. And, and so the success of any recommendations will probably depend on, you know, what universities are also willing to do to support people working in their labs. That was really one of the big sticking points and has been, you know, within the UC system. So that's another situation that I'm uh, tracking as well, you know, where you have students who think, who feel even after the uh, strikes uh, of last year that they're still not receiving the full raises they were promised uh, in in their contracts. So just how far universities are willing to go to support people working in their labs uh, and to help keep them, you know, that, that that's going to be an interesting and sort of complicated thing to follow going forward. Well, I actually think this is quite hopeful that the NIH is taking charge here because isn't it the NIH who sets current postdoc salary levels? You know, if, if the funding agency says, here is what we allocate for postdoc pay, the universities tend to follow that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, everybody generally follows, you know, the salaries that the NIH sets, although those salaries are, are actually meant to be minimums that sure. universities <laughs> sure. use. As a- <laughs> but they could, the NIH could theoretically raise the minimum and people would respond to that. Yes, yes, I, I think that's a that's a good point. Whatever whatever the NIH recommends is is going to get a lot of attention and sort of set the standard for what happens more broadly. It's not as if a podcast host recommended something to do, then nobody would listen and it wouldn't matter. But the NIH actually does carry some weight, I feel. Well, Jonathan, I am personally cautiously optimistic that there are some changes that will maintain scientific research and get us to the other side of this. But the person I'm going to be following for this story is you. So where can people find your work online and uh, tell us about how they can connect with you if they need to? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a bunch of different ways to do that. I'm on Twitter or X, whatever we're calling it now. My handle is at Jonathan Wozen, just my first and last name. I'm on LinkedIn. So you can certainly message me that way. My email is jonathan.wozen at statnews.com. Speaking of which, you can just go directly to Stat News and read my stuff. So you know, we do use a subscription model to uh, pay for our journalism, but we have a 75% off uh, discount for anybody who's connected to academia in any way. So the code for that would be academic75, academic all caps and 75, no space there. So that's just a little, hopefully, useful bit of info for people. Uh, and if anybody's listening who's part of a university or an academic institution and you're you know, wondering, well, why don't we have some sort of group subscription so I can read stat news articles, uh, you can you know, send an email to groups at statnews.com and potentially set that up because we do have some really good offers to try to get our journalism out to people at uh, different academic institutes and you know, we'd love to help anybody who's uh, trying to make that happen. I think it's a good recommendation and for anybody listening, particularly if you're interested in a career in biotech, um, but you also cover a lot of academia. Stat News is great. I have it in my bookmark bar now. Not just articles about here's what's happening in the academic world, but also companies that are up and coming and new research that's happening, controversies. I think those articles are always fascinating. So if you want to kind of get the pulse for the 
industry world as well as the academic one, I would I would definitely check out Stat News. Yeah, I mean, I, I just wrote, I, I guess, uh, shortly before us doing this podcast, I just wrote a story about a new study in science showing essentially that rats have an imagination uh, using some uh, brain implants, brain computer interface research blended with virtual reality to show that rats can imagine objects and places that are not directly in front of them. So that's that was interesting and digging into various companies and trends in, in the life science industry. So we're, uh, we've got tons of, of really interesting uh, journalism around DA and policy and health equity and you know, hospitals and the healthcare systems, as well as uh, basic science. So it's, it's a fun, fun place to keep track of the news. Well, thank you again. And I do want to have you back to talk about your career development and how you got from an immunology lab at Stanford to where you are today. But again, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, I promise we'll make that second episode happen. And until then, thanks for having me on. It's been a fun conversation. All right, Dan, that was that was a great interview. I, I learned a ton. And also, I feel like it really put some some data behind this these anecdotal trends and observations that we were hearing from out in the field, hearing from faculty, hearing from postdocs, that there really is this shift in the in the career pipeline, and especially uh, centered around the postdoc step. And I'm really excited for uh, people to read this article that that Jonathan wrote. But Dan, what what stood out to you from your your conversation? I think what this helped me do, Josh, was connect the dots between. I understood that doing a postdoc is not a great uh, job opportunity. It is a low-pay environment. There's quite a bit of stress. That part I get, but that has always been the case. What I didn't understand, because I'm not in that world, is that these industry jobs, there's been a growth in the biotech and biopharma industries. Uh, They've been, you know, I think there's cheap money for the last four or five, ten years. And so they've been able to hire and pay people that would have done a postdoc of double the salary effectively. And so I understood the one side and this gave me the counterbalance. The thing that is actually accelerating the trend out of the academic lab is there's money out in the industry world. And I think that is a blessing and a curse for uh, scientists, honestly. Yeah, that's totally true. And you know, Dan, in my, in my work, I, I talk to a lot of graduate students and, and specifically I talk to them a lot about their career plans and I can tell you over the last three years specifically, I've had numerous conversations with graduate students who are finishing up, they're, they're finished with their PhD, and many of them are students I've known for quite a while who I know uh, some of them really were focused on pursuing the faculty path and opening their own academic lab was a primary reason they wanted to come to graduate school and really a professional goal during their time in graduate school who then came to the end and looked at their actual prospects in those moments, and they saw, on one hand, I could pursue a postdoc like I thought I was going to do. And, you know, there's the uncertainty. It's not just the money, Dan, but there's the uncertainty of, all right, I'm going to go to this postdoc lab. I'm going to make fifty dollars or $60,000 a year, and then maybe in three, four, five years, I'll go on the academic job search and we'll see what happens. Who knows where I'll be? Who knows where I'll find a job? Who knows what kind of startup money I'm going to get? Or I'm realizing I have this offer from this biotech company paying me six figures 
and tens of thousands of dollars in moving allowance. And I'm probably going to work a more regular hours, <laughs> you know, and it's really hard for anyone. You can't blame anyone for making that decision in that moment, even if it's a change of what they thought they were going to do. And I think that's my hesitation about saying this is unequivocally a good thing. If the money were commensurate on both sides, if the lifestyle were commensurate on both sides, and some people chose industry because they wanted to do uh, drug development, and some people chose academia because they wanted to do basic research, that would be perfect. I would love to have all those opportunities out there. I think the part that makes me nervous is that people who would like to go be a professor, do some teaching, uh, work at a research institution aren't doing that because it is just the the disparate nature of the pay scale and the lifestyle. It is forcing them to make a choice that I think maybe they wouldn't have made if the two things had been more similar. So that's what makes me nervous is that people are choosing based on their need. And it may not even be like, I want to make six figures. And that's a, a lifestyle goal of mine. It's that I have the student debt. I have children. I have a spouse who maybe can't work or we need to have uh, enough money to live in the region that we're living in, whatever the reasons are. Uh, it is sort of forcing people's hands to make a decision. And I don't know, that, that makes me a little bit nervous, along with some other things, Josh. Like, I would love to talk to you about where you see research going. Um, is, it, is it okay that we're not doing every experiment we can envision? Maybe it is, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, you know, this, this brought up a couple thoughts that, that I had. And, and the first one is, and I'll say, Dan, I was a postdoc. I did a postdoc. Um, for a little bit of time after graduate school. And for the most part, that was a pretty good experience for me. Although and after should... you did it, Josh, everybody decided like, oh, that was the best <laughs> it could be done. We should all not do it ever again. Is that what it was? You broke it. Well, I will say that one reason that I might have fond memories of being a postdoc is I was only a postdoc for uh, about a year and a half. So <laughs> it was very short. That's right. It was very short before I found the eventual uh, job that I was looking for and I, I jumped ship. But one thing we're seeing, I think there's two sides of the coin, Dan. You know, there's, there's these positives that individuals are seeing on the biotech industry side. And we talked about some of those, the certainty, the, the financial aspect. But also, there's the negatives on the other side. And, and you all touched on that. The academic postdoc position does not really have much going for it, other than right. unless you are just so professionally committed to pursuing an academic faculty path. That's really actually the only positive, right? There's, it's a means to an end. And I think one reason for that is, in my view, the academic postdoc, it is a great deal, but it's a great deal for everyone except the postdoc. Right, exactly. It's a great deal for faculty, for sure. You have this uh, highly trained, highly knowledgeable uh, individual with a PhD in a specialized field who you're paying very little, especially given their experience and educational level. And we're seeing that. I mean, the value that those individuals have in the open market is two, if not three times greater than what they're finding in academia. And then on top of that, it's a great deal for the institution. You know, postdocs are generating a lot of the data and writing a lot of the grants that's bringing in millions of dollars to research institutions. And in most cases, Dan, postdocs don't even have the same employee benefits or protections as other employees at the university. Exactly. And sometimes even as students, as full-time students have, they really have the worst of all worlds. You know, they're, they're cheap labor for the institution and the, the faculty advisor. So, 
So it's great for everyone, but not great for the postdoc. And so, you know, that made me think like it's no wonder that faculty are feeling a loss of not having these cheap, highly skilled individuals working in their lab. But one other thought I had, Dan, was around this topic that you all discussed about how this shortage of postdocs is impacting the actual research that is being done in some cases. And I thought that was really fascinating. You know, and you can think about this yourself, Dan, as a graduate student, your motivations in the lab and sort of your time in the lab are very different. You know, you need a thesis project that hopefully in a certain time frame is going to yield some papers, some results so that you can graduate. Um, whereas a postdoc, their, their time and their motivations are a little more open-ended. And so this idea that there's, there are quote-unquote riskier projects, high risk, high reward, that are not being done because they're not good grad student projects, they're better postdoc projects. And what that made me think of, Dan, was, again, a topic we've discussed before on the show, this nature of how we approach graduate education. And, you know, what's sort of inherent in that is, well, okay, this really interesting, quote unquote, risky project could be a really interesting project scientifically for a graduate student to do. But the reason under the current model, it's not a good project for them is, well, if it doesn't work out, they're going to be stuck because they need a paper and they need a certain amount of positive results to graduate. If your experiment doesn't work, you don't graduate. That's the, that's the deal that you make. Yeah, and it's almost like we've put this model, this model of how we progress and train graduate students above just training individuals as scientists and um, allowing them to do interesting and cutting-edge work. And and that's not to say graduate students don't do that, uh, but I guess it made me think, it sort of reinforced for me that maybe the, the model with which we train graduate students uh, and the requirements for graduation are probably flawed. I'm glad you said that because I, I don't think I would have connected those two patterns together, but you're so right. There is an inherent bias toward uh, risk-free or low-risk projects for graduate students, and it's, it's because of the nature of how graduate training works. So I think a reckoning is happening, and, and it'll, you know, academia is not a fast-moving beast. It's going to take years to play out, maybe a decade. Um, what I expect and hope to see is better pay and treatment for postdocs. I really love the idea of more staff scientist positions. And Josh, wouldn't it be wonder, wonderful if graduate students got uh, got to graduate based on their development and their training and not on the specific output of a single experiment or a set of experiments? I mean, that would be wonderful if all of those things happened. I totally agree, Dan. And, you know, one, one last thought that, that comes to mind, and this is not necessarily something that that you all talked about, but this has been rattling around in my head for, for a few years now. And that is, it, it always has been a little peculiar to me, the amount of training that we have decided is necessary for someone to become a faculty member uh, at an academic institution. The fact that we, and I actually believe, Dan, that the reason why this postdoc step because it wasn't always this way. You didn't always need to do five years of a postdoc after your PhD before you could start being an independent researcher at the faculty ranks at a university. And I believe, Dan, that one reason that that happened was what we talked about a minute ago, is there were just enough people 
who were pursuing those positions that we were able to create and expand, again, this cheap labor market of highly trained individuals uh, who could do work under existing faculty. Um, but I think one one thing that, that you see sometimes is a lot of folks also burn out and spin out during that postdoc step because it can take so long or you get in a bad lab situation. Or now even this this notion of reasons why people who are otherwise interested in academic positions are choosing to opt out because they don't want that intermediate step that's super unappealing and may not even lead to exactly what they want to do. And I worry that we are, as I believe uh, you all discussed, that we're going to lose some really great minds, some really great science because of this intermediate step that maybe we don't want. I mean, what if what if academic institutions had a different model of hiring junior faculty where you bring in these folks who are doing great work as graduate students and you created a support network around them. Maybe you bring them in and you give them the opportunity to start doing some independent research, but maybe under guidance and mentorship of existing faculty, maybe give them some support as they write some of their first grant applications. I'm not convinced that scientists become better, quote unquote, uh, just by having this default three to five year postdoc step. I think in some cases it actually burns people out and we, we lose more good ideas than we gain. Thank you for saying that because I often forget that postdocs are a pretty modern invention. It was not always this way. Although we assume now this is just how it's done and, and it's so easy to lose that perspective. So thank you for saying that. And it's worth noting, Dan, there actually are a handful of programs out there at institutions um, that do bring in and train junior faculty straight out of the PhD. I would not say they're common, but there certainly are programs like that. Um, there are initiatives like that that do exist. And, you know, I wonder, Dan, at some point if maybe we will see that grow. Because I think at the end of the day, you know what, what you worry about is regardless of where scientists end up in their career, whether it's in industry or academia or policy or something else, they're all being trained at academic institutions. They're being trained by faculty um, at universities and colleges. And so the more we lose some of the best people, <laughs> you know, you could argue right. who have all these opportunities. Um, we're also losing not just the scientific discoveries, but the individuals who are training the next generation of scientists and who's left behind, you know, who, who are we selecting for uh, that's going to be left to, uh, to train the scientists of the future. And so I kind of worry about that drain over time and how that's going to impact uh, the nature of training and the quality of of training future scientists. So true, and and I'm not going to make you speculate on on what you think <laughs> it will do <laughs> to academic research. Um, it, it, I'm extremely curious to know how the pace of advancement slows or changes, um, but. Jonathan Wozen, his latest article published on November 15th, which is why we couldn't release this episode right away, is titled Life Scientist Flight to Biotech Labs Stalls Important Academic Research. And so I just encourage everybody to check that out, um, definitely using the stat code uh, promo code that we talked about in the interview. Um, but yeah, I, I think he's tracking this and, and that's who I'm going to follow to understand these issues. Yeah, please go read that article. And also, if you are someone who is nearing the end of your PhD and you've been wrestling with that 
the decision about your next step, specifically if you're thinking about doing a postdoc or pursuing other opportunities in biotech or elsewhere, uh, we'd love to hear about your thought process and the things you're thinking about. Or maybe you are a postdoc now, or maybe you changed your mind, decided not to do a postdoc. If you have something you'd like to say on on that topic or give us some insight into your own decision-making, I think that would be really interesting to hear from our listeners who are approaching this step or who are uh, have recently navigated this step, just to hear what, what your thoughts are. Absolutely. And if you have any other questions or topic ideas, obviously we would love to hear them. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com or send us a an X at hellophd. If you'd like to support the show, the best thing you can do is to share it with a friend, a lab mate, or your department listserv. We reach new listeners entirely by word of mouth, so we need your help. If you'd like, you can also become a patron. Just go to our website, hellophd.com, click on the Become a Patron button, or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We'd appreciate the beer money, Josh. We did not have a beer today. Sad. Uh, but thanks to the ongoing support from our patrons. Postdocs and our beer segment were both in Exodus <laughs> today. That's right. The tipping point. Did we spill our beers? We tipped them? I wanted to say to Dan, if people do want to reach out, I do highly recommend the email option. I've been very poor at monitoring our X messages lately. So maybe we will even phase that <laughs> phase that out yeah. at some point in the future. It's email not us. great for your mental health to be on X uh, for now. So... In the meantime, Josh, we will see you next time and uh, stay safe. All right. See you next time, Dan.